Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. seated. We are pleased this morning to bring to our pulpit a guest speaker. We will be blessed today by the ministry of uh, Pastor Micah Renahan. Pastor Renahan is the pastor at Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Brunswick, Maine. He's been in that church serving for 10 years. He has a wife and a five-year-old daughter. He's a graduate of Westminster Seminary in California, as well as IRBS, that's the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies. And uh, he does have a little bit of a connection to our church here. Uh, he is the cousin of our pianist, Aaron Peterson, and his father is Jim Renahan, uh, who is the president and dean of IRBS in Mansfield, Texas. We've gotten to know Mike over the last several years as Reformed Baptists are few and far between in the Northeast, and so we've been working together to try to uh, enhance and, and have more fellowship and uh, ministry opportunities as, as churches uh, ministering in the Northeast. So with that in mind, welcome to our pulpit, Pastor Micah Renahan. Come, Micah, come and preach for us. Thank you for the kind invitation to come. It's been a delight to be here, uh, not only to preach to you, but also to participate in the uh, ordination council that was held yesterday, as uh, I'm sure at least most of you are very well aware that uh, we sat with uh, Anthony and with, uh, and with Anthony and with Chris and uh, had the privilege of uh, making them squirm as much as possible while we asked them uh, theological questions. And um, and your pastor, Rich, invited me to, to preach uh, today as well. And, uh, and so I'll be using that as the, uh, the theme for the sermon today. Uh, you can begin to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 if you like. But as you do so, I also want you to know I bring greetings from, uh, from my church, Grace Reformed Baptist in Brunswick, Maine. We uh, prayed for you, and uh, it's a delight to be able to see your faces, to know the people that we are praying for. I have met Pastor Rich and just last year met uh, Chris and Anthony as well. Um, Maine is a, a beautiful place to come and visit. And if you're ever looking for a place to go on vacation, come on up. We'd be glad to have you with us and to worship with you. Our text today is 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 16. Uh, I uh, asked too late uh, which... Um, translation of the scripture you typically use, and I brought my ESV, so that's what I'll be reading out of. I understand your pastor usually preaches from the NASB. 
One thing I forgot to say by way of introduction, uh, in the call to worship this morning from Psalm 119, we read, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. And I thought about that as uh, we read that. And uh, Though I have not met most of you before, uh, we are companions because we fear the Lord. We serve him. And it's a, a delight to renew those, to, to um, renew friendship and uh, uh, get to know you better. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and this will draw our attention to the topic of the pastoral ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2, let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, you were ready to share, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the way that it gives light to our path, the way that it guides us through life. Thank you for the uh, the hope of the gospel which is held out for us in it. But we know that this word will be of no use to us if we do not receive it by faith and if the Holy Spirit does not come and help us. And so we, we bow ourselves humbly before you, asking that you would do a good work in us through your word, by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was asked to preach today, I immediately began to go through 
my mind and think of an appropriate text to bring to you that would suit the occasion. And very quickly, I thought of this passage here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I was drawn to this passage for a couple of reasons. For one thing, it has instructions for both pastors and for those who are hearing the word. And so I felt it would help in being able to address all who are here. There will be times, in fact, much of the sermon today is focused upon those who serve in the pastoral ministry. And so I will be especially addressing the two men who are being ordained today, but uh, I hope that you will all listen as we discuss those things. But there will be other times when the word speaks to, to all of us as hearers of the word, and I trust we will listen carefully to that as well. Another reason I was drawn to this passage is because of the way that it helps to fill out the biblical qualifications for a pastor, or what the, the man of God is supposed to do in the ministry of the word. Most of us are familiar to some extent with the lists of qualifications that can be found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1, but you know, that's not all that the Bible has to say about what it means to be a pastor. We should not limit our theology of pastoral ministry or the qualifications for the pastoral ministry to just those two chapters. Um, now, I bring this not, I, I don't have any idea about what kinds of pastor, uh, passages your pastor has walked through you, so this is not some kind of attempt to supplement something that I feel is lacking. Uh, that's not the case. It's simply uh, something I, I hope will be helpful to you as we think through this. So we want to, to add uh, these verses into our understanding of what a pastor is and what he's called to be and to do. One of the things we'll find, the, the primary thing we'll focus on today is the way that the Word of God compares the role of a pastor to that of both a, a mother and a father. And for that reason, I've entitled this message, Parenting the Church. Parenting the church. I'll give you a little sense of where we're going today. The structure of the sermon is going to, to follow a little bit of a, a musical pattern. Uh, if you've sometimes listened to a song, let's say it has uh, four verses, and if you just sing through all four verses, sometimes it gets a little repetitive, and so musicians will often insert before the last verse a, a musical interlude or a bridge of some kind, and, and that's kind of what we're going to do today. Uh, we'll have these four main points, and we'll have an interlude before the last one. The, the first point will be to consider what the pastor is not, and this text has a, a variety of things to tell us about that. Secondly, we'll see the pastor as a mother, and then the pastor as a father. And up to that point, it will be lots of information of these are things that you must do as a pastor, and so I wanted then to have this interlude, this word of encouragement that focuses not so much on what the pastor is called to do, but the, the way that the pastor is able to rest in the work of God. And then our final point, we'll look to the response that the church is to have to the ministry of their pastor among them. This is a, a long passage. We've read these 16 verses. There's a great deal of material here. Uh, I certainly will not get through, uh, address everything. Uh, I'm going to focus on those items that I feel are most applicable to uh, our purposes today. So uh, if I've skipped over something that you hoped I would talk about, I apologize in advance. But 
let's, let's dive right in. Uh, let's begin by considering some of the things that a pastor is not, and we find this in verses 3 through 6. Now, what's, what's happening in general here is that the Apostle Paul is concerned to, to defend himself against accusations of an improper ministry, and at the same time, he's also trying to contrast himself with the false teachers that would come and seek to lead the church astray. And so as he defends his own ministry, as he describes the things that he does properly that false teachers don't do, that's where we begin to get his teaching about uh, how pastors are supposed to function. Now, he, he's speaking about more than just himself, though. You'll notice in verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you. Our coming, it's, it's more than one person, right? Us, our, we. And those pronouns will follow through the passage. And we might ask, who are these people? Who is the us, the we, the our? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. These three men are writing this letter. We think of the first letter of 1 Thessalonians, oh, it's written by Paul. Well, it is written by Paul, but along with Timothy and Silvanus. Uh, and, and that's just helpful because we know Silvanus and Timothy were not apostles in the same way that Paul was, or the, the twelve. And so we realize this isn't just speaking about the specific apostolic ministry it's speaking about the pastoral ministry, the ministry of the word. And so it's, uh, we are able to apply these things ourselves. All right, so as these men are comparing themselves with false apostles, they begin by describing several things that they do not do. Let's start with verse 3. It says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Three things here, our appeals not have to do with error, impurity, or attempt to deceive. All of these three items have to do with the truthfulness of the message that is being brought. First thing, he says the truth, that they're not bringing any error, right? They, they're bringing the, the truth, the very word of God, those things which they have themselves learned and are now passing along. Yesterday, we had this council. We spent several hours interrogating these men about points of doctrine. And some churches might see that as, as unnecessary or perhaps overkill. You spent six hours doing what? Well, doctrine is important. Doctrine is important. It is the responsibility of the man of God to bring the truth. Now, we know doctrine's not the only thing. If you look at 1 Timothy and in Titus, those lists of qualifications actually focus more on the character of the man. But doctrine still has that critical place. These men who will stand before you are to bring the truth to you. Truth without error, we're told. And then it says truth uh, without impurity, right? Impurity. A substance is impure when it becomes mixed with something else, right? Right? Pure gold is just that, pure gold, only gold, and it becomes impure as soon as something else is mixed in with it. The doctrine that pastors teach must be pure. 
There cannot be any falsehood mixed into it. No deviation by adding something else to the truth. This is absolutely critical to understand, especially when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. Okay, now stop right there for a minute. Good news. Not the good command, not the good suggestion. It's the good news. That means it's about what God has done, what Jesus alone has done for us, the salvation we receive by God's grace alone that we lay hold of by faith in Jesus alone. The Bible tells us that if we add anything to the gospel, do you know what happens? We lose the gospel. We lose the gospel. The littlest bit of mixture of falsehood. And it's no longer Christ alone. It's no longer grace alone. And the moment it's not grace alone and Christ alone, it's not the gospel anymore. This is why Paul gets so worked up in Galatians. This is what Colossians chapter 2 is all about. This is one of the critical concerns of the apostle. The gospel be kept pure. So truth without error, truth without impurity, and then the third is truth without deception. There's no tricks here. The gospel ministry is not one, it's not like a magician trying to to pull one over on somebody. They must mean, the minister must mean what he says. You cannot say one thing while you actually mean another thing. And you can't even say one thing when you know people will misunderstand you as saying something else, and then take advantage of that misunderstanding. So, for instance, we are not, ministers are not about trying to get someone to repeat a prayer after us when they don't really know what they're saying, as though we can then just say, presto, you've been saved, you're, you're part of the church now, when in fact no work of grace has been done in their hearts. Brothers and sisters, that's deception. And it has no place in the pastoral ministry. So, brothers, as much as you are able, see to it that no, there is no error in your ministry. And then verse 4, the next thing we are not to do. It says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Minister must not be one who seeks to please men. Now, I have never yet met a good Reformed Baptist pastor who goes into the ministry thinking that they will be a man-pleaser. But brothers, make no mistake how easy it is to fall into this trap. Sometimes you stand up to preach, and you begin to learn the types of comments that get people to nod their heads and say amen. We have some good ameners in this congregation. Right? Praise the Lord for that. That's right. There may be a temptation for you when you write your sermons to write with this thought in your mind, I know what will get an amen. And it may be that you find that the amens Sometimes they'll come in good places. Sometimes they 
can betray a certain interest in other matters. Sometimes a pastor begins to touch on some more political types of issues and the amens start to come. And before you know it, you realize that you're speaking for the sake of the people and not out of responsibility to God. You can abandon the gospel and abandon the commission that Jesus Christ has given to you when you preach for the amen rather than preaching for the Lord. Or here's another example that this can happen. You sit in a couple in there, sit in someone's living room with a, a couple, a husband and wife. They have deep struggles in their marriage. And you desperately want to help them. But you struggle to know what to say. How can I bring the word of God to this couple in a way that will bring life and will bring help to them? But something begins to happen where instead of taking your direction from Scripture, you, because you want to help, because you want to feel like you're making progress, you begin to say the kinds of things that you know one or both of them will want to hear. It feels like, well, now we're making progress. But you know, that's really just a charade. For then you've become a man-pleaser. Brothers, it is not your duty to please men. It is your duty to please God. Now, I, I hope that your ministry is pleasing to the church. Right? If, you, if they are looking for the right thing and you're doing the right thing, the church will be pleased with your ministry and praise God for that. But your goal is never to please the church, but to please the God who has given you your commission. The next thing we're told a minister must not do, verse 5 says, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor were the pretext for greed, God is witness. A minister must not engage in flattery or act based on greed or covetousness. And I think these two have something in common. In both cases, there are ulterior motives in doing the ministry in which ultimately the, the man is focused on himself. Why do people, why are, will people engage in flattery? It's actually for their own sake, isn't it? Right? If I can butter up this person, they'll like me. And isn't there something similar then with covetousness, right? Either, so this, in verse 5, we're speaking either of someone who wants people to like them or who wants people's money. You are not in this ministry for yourself. I hope that God will grant you much joy and blessing in it. But remember how the chapter begins. The Apostle Paul tells us of the suffering he has endured in various places. So you must have a realistic sense of what you've been called to, and it is not your own advancement. Verse 6 says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Similar to the last verse, the ministry cannot be an avenue for seeking glory. It cannot be an avenue either for just trying to get your own way. Right? There will be sometimes people who want to be in a position of leadership because, well, things aren't the way I want them to be, but if I can just get into a position of leadership, then I can make things to be how I want it to be. Brothers, it is not your mission, it is God's. It is not your wisdom, it is God's. It is not your truth, 
It is God's. It is not your power. It is God's. It is not your skill. It is God's. It is not your church. It is God's. Trying to get the glory for yourself or trying to force your way on others by placing demands upon them is utterly inappropriate. So here we have a whole series of things that should not be a part of the pastoral ministry. Departures from the truth through error, impurity, or deceit. A desire to please men. Looking for an ego bump or a bank account bump. Or seeking your own glory and trying to get your own way. Well, having laid out many of these things that the ministry is not to be, the apostle then turns to speak positively. And here we begin to see in verses 7 and 8 how the pastor is called to be like a mother. Let me read verses 7 and 8. It says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being, de- uh, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Uh, is this water bottle for me? I don't know. Yes, okay. It is now. Thank you. You'll notice how verse 7 begins with the word but. But we were gentle. There's this contrast that's being made. Rather than those bad things, here then is the good things you are to do. You may know this, but scripture often works in this way. It doesn't simply tell us the things to stop doing, but it tells us the things to positively do. You put off the old man and you put on the new man. Many Christians struggle with their sanctification because all they ever think about is the stop doing the bad thing and they miss the positive righteousness that is to be put on. Well, there's something similar here with regard to the pastoral ministry. Yes, there are things you must not do, but then there are things you must positively do. And the governing idea in verse 7 and 8 is, as I said, that the minister is to be like a nursing mother. Not just like a mother, but like a nursing mother. Let me point out a few things that that means. Verse 7 says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother. We were gentle among you. This is one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy as well. Gentleness. Being gentle is, of course, in contrast to being violent or forceful, right? Someone who's just determines to get their way, and they will push it through no matter what. There's a gentleness. Think of how carefully a mother cradles her nursing child so that the child is not hurt. Right? There are so many ways that a child, a nursing child, can be injured. Right? Even if you don't hold the head up, it starts flopping around, and they can become injured. Right? There has to be a, a gentleness, a care. Brothers, you also must be gentle. And and if you ever struggle with this, all we have to do is think about how gentle the Lord Jesus is with us. Think about our sinfulness, all of our frailty, and how careful he is. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't quench the smoking flax. And this is the pattern you are to have as well. There will be times, perhaps regularly, when you will be dealing with people in great need, in deep sorrow, in pain, and in anguish over their sin. 
And when those who are suffering and afflicted come to you, you, you must be gentle with them. So as a mother is gentle, you are to be gentle as well. The second thing we see about a mother here is that she gives of herself. Uh, again, in verse, uh, verse 7, we have the nursing mother taking care of her own child. But then in verse 8, it says, We are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Share themselves. Think for a minute of all that goes into having a child. All of the ways in which a mother gives of her own body for the infant. The child is conceived in her body. She undergoes nine months of what is probably uh, politely described as significant discomfort. Uh, then there's the birth, which, of course, is, uh, can be extraordinarily painful in itself and have lasting effects upon the body. And then after the birth, the ch after the child is born, then the mother has the responsibility to be constantly holding and caring for the infant, including even feeding the child from her own body. I think the image is quite clear. You are to give of yourselves for the sake of the church and the way that a good and loving mother gives of herself to her children. And then thirdly, we understand here about a mother that she is affectionate. Verse 8, Paul says they were affectionately desirous. I should have double-checked what the NASB says. Uh, it could also be translated as deeply affectionate. Right? It says we were being, uh, in the ESV it says, so being affectionately desirous of you could be being deeply affectionate. And then at the end of verse 8, he says, it's because you had become very dear to us. You, had, you, were, you were beloved. Beloved. Again, the, the imagery, I think, is, is so easy to grasp onto here. You think of just that, that deep love that a mother has for the child. The affection. And that's your calling as well. The pastoral ministry is not something cold and clinical something where you express deep affection. The ones you serve are your beloved, ones you are deeply affectionate for. Perhaps you can see how this comparison to a mother is, is pushing back against those negative things, right? There, there can be no place for seeking your own gain or your own glory. There is no place for the, the, this bully attitude that had been spoken against earlier. You as a pastor are to be like a nursing mother. Then we move to the next paragraph in verses 9 through 12. We find a new metaphor. Now, Pastors are compared to fathers with their children. And that will come especially in verse 11, but I, I think it governs the entire paragraph. Uh, let's see a couple of ways that this imagery is, is developed. First, in verse 9, it says, For you remember brothers. You remember brothers. And I think that's, that's significant already. Paul is able to speak to the Thessalonians and say, you saw this firsthand. Our fatherly care towards you was something that was visible, that you could say, yes, we saw it. 
It was clear to the church how Paul himself had done these things. He didn't hide his actions. He didn't hide his attitude toward them, but he made it known. There are some fathers that that restrain themselves from showing interest or affection in their children. That's not the kind of father you are called to be. Here they are called to be the kind of father where, where the kids can look back on their childhood and have no difficulty remembering the good things that their father did for them. So what are those things? Uh, it goes on to say, for you, remember, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. They're called to hard work. Called to hard work. Paul says he didn't want to be a burden on the church. He took it on himself to work hard to be able to provide for himself. But just as a father works hard to provide for and to care for his family, doing whatever is needed to make sure that they are taken care of, you also are to work hard, night and day if necessary, with much labor and toil for the sake of the church. The next thing he says about a father is, in verse 10, he tells us, as a father, you must live an exemplary life. Verse 10, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Holy, righteous, blameless. <laughs> That's an intimidating thing to hear, right? Uh, it certainly is for myself. Uh, blameless is not one of the words I typically use to describe my own life. Um, and it should be intimidating, right? Too often we are, are lazy in regard to godliness personal holiness. But we cannot be lazy in this area or else we are not fit to be pastors. But there is some encouragement here because we know this is not a call to perfection, as though there cannot ever be any speck of sin in your lives or in your heart. If that were the standard, no one would ever be qualified to serve as a minister of the gospel. And so the way that that I understand this, the way that the church has understood this, is that it's a call to have a public reputation for these things. A public reputation for these things. You'll notice even the way that it, it says here, it says, you are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward your you believers. That there is this, this is what's on display before those who would watch us. That we have, we are known for these kinds of things. Brothers, there will be much conflict in your heart. This is true of, of every man who has ever lived except our Lord himself. But in your outward conduct, you must show yourself as having a regular pattern and habit of living in holy, righteous, and blameless ways. So that just as a father is the one who is supposed to set the tone for righteousness in the home, so it should be with pastors 
in the church. The fourth instruction, uh, the fourth way that the metaphor of the father is developed here, we are told that just like a father, it is your duty to exhort, encourage, and charge the people of God to walk in a manner worthy of God. This is verse 12. Right? We exhorted each one of you and encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In a home, it is the father's duty first and foremost to be raising the children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And there's something of that here in the church as well. It is the pastor's duty to train the, the children, that is the, the, the flock, the church over which he is a pastor, in doing what is right. It's your job to train the people of God in godly living. Paul tells us that there are a variety of tactics you will need to take because different situations require different kinds of responses. And you could spend a, a, a whole bunch of time here, but just to touch on them very quickly, he tells us that some situations will call for exhortation. Exhortation has this idea of urging someone to do the right thing. There will be some situations that call for encouragement, where you are sort of that, the way we talk about it, sort of the cheerleader, right? Encouraging someone on in what is good and in encouraging them, reinforcing the goodness of righteousness. There will also be someone, so, there will also be situations that will call for you to, to charge someone. This is a, a stronger word. It's a more stern admonition. It has the idea of pressing upon someone that they must flee from their sin and live for God. You will face all of these different kinds of situations and it will be your duty like a father with their child to encourage them, to exhort them, to charge them, whatever that it is that they need at that moment, that they might live in a godly way, worthy of God. So here we have these instructions as fathers, to visibly express your fatherly care for the church, to work hard for them, to lead a life that gives a godly example to the flock, and to train the people to do what is right through exhortation, encouragement, and charging them with the truth. Well, let's, let's pause here for the, the, the interlude, the encouragement. This is our, our musical bridge, to use that metaphor. Uh, we'll move on to the hearers, to the response of the church in a moment, but, but I, I really want to give some encouragement to pastors here. Uh, up to this point, it's... It's just such a daunting and intimidating thing, right, to consider to be a, a pastor, to have these kinds of duties. Who is sufficient for these things? Well, I have, uh, I think it's three, uh, three quick points of encouragement. The first goes back to verse 1. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about his ministry among the Thessalonians. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Was not in vain. Brothers, know this. All of the hard labor, the striving, the tears, the joys, the challenges, 
all of this labor is not in vain. God is using it to bring his purposes about. Sometimes that's easier to see than at other times, but it's always true. It's always true. God always uses faithful ministry for his glory. There has never been a single moment of faithful ministry that God forgot to use for his glory. Your labor is not in vain. The second word of encouragement, and this one is so critical. I, I considered preaching just on this idea itself. Um, brothers, you must know that the work done in the church is not your work. It's Christ's work. And you are simply the tool in his hands. Verse 13 tells us that the word that is preached is not the words of men, but the words of God. It's not our message, it's not our power, it's God's message that's given to us in Christ Jesus and with the power of the Holy Spirit. When somebody is in need of help, they don't need your help, they need Christ's help. You're the one who brings them Christ's help. I've been reading a book on the pastoral ministry lately. It's written by a Lutheran, Harold Senkbell. I don't know if I've said that right. It's entitled The Care of Souls. It's a really excellent book. You, I uh, would recommend it to you. You understand he'll come from a slightly different perspective on a couple of items because of his Lutheranism. Uh, entitled The Care of Souls, and, and he makes this point powerfully, that all the work done in the church is Christ's work. It's not yours. And I think this is a wonderfully freeing truth. This truth is, th this is what's your strength. This is what's your encouragement and your hope. Because you see, if this work is something that you have to accomplish, you will absolutely fail. You will absolutely fail. But if instead of trying to do the work of ministry yourself, you focus on bringing Christ to the church, then you will succeed. You will succeed. Never do the work of ministry in your own power. This is why so many ministers leave the church over burnout. This is why good churches can become cold and dead. If the pastor begins to think it's his work, it's all downhill from there. Now, oddly, sometimes there's actually a surge in attendance when this begins to happen because the church is now offering something that people are looking for, a, a strong personality, a particular individual's own perspective on things, and they're not looking for Christ. And so they start coming because it's not Christ that they're getting. They find a powerful personality, a charismatic figure. They latch on to that person. But if that's what's beginning to define the church rather than Christ, it's, it's all downhill from there. My job is not to have Micah Renahan fix people's problems, to have Micah Renahan convert people, to have Micah Renahan be the source of strength for people's faith. Micah Renahan cannot do any of those things. But Christ can do all of them. Everyone. Your job is to set Christ before the church. And your success as a minister depends first and foremost on this one thing. Are you bringing Christ before the church? Or are you bringing something else? Anything else. Whether yourself, some other person, some other thing. It's the word of God. It's the word of Christ. 
Well, to reinforce this is that the third piece of the interlude, we can follow the example that the, Paul, the Apostle Paul gives in verse 13. It says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Give thanks to God whenever the word is received well. Give thanks to God whenever the word is received well. Why would we give thanks to God? Because it's his work. A prayerful spirit of thanksgiving will go a long way to helping you to remember who it is that does the work of the ministry. So yes, there are all these requirements upon you, all these things that you must do. But your great joy and hope and strength and encouragement is that Christ does the work. And we praise the Lord for that. The final thing we want to do is to spend a little bit of time thinking of the response that the church should have to what might be considered their parents in the faith. These pastors who are acting towards them as fathers and mothers. And so there are four things that I want to touch on. And again, uh, we'll move through these quickly. Actually, I think I only have three of them. So three things. First, brothers and sisters, when your pastor brings the word of God to do, you must receive it not as the words of men, but as the words of God. This is what we just read in verse 13. He thanks them that when they heard the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now, some people get really worried about this because it might sound as though it means that whatever the pastor says, I have to do. That's not the point at all. The text does not tell us to receive everything that is said to us as though it comes from God. It says, receive the word of God which they bring as the word of God. A pastor who thinks that he can tell you what color clothing you're supposed to wear on Wednesday has overstepped his bounds a long time ago and does not need to be listened to. But whenever your pastor brings to you the word of God, know you are hearing God's word, not his word. And you must receive it that way. The pastor is, in that moment, God's instrument calling you to faith and obedience. And you must hear that call as though it is God himself speaking. So humble yourself and submit yourself to this teaching. Second thing for the church to know, you must believe that it is God who is at work in you. Just as the minister must believe that it's all God's work, you also must believe it is all God's work. And this is found at the end of verse 13. It says right after what he gives thanks for, it's, it's not the words of men, but really the word of God. He says, which is at work in you believers. Sometimes it's easy for us to doubt the active work of God in our own hearts or in the life of the church. Sometimes we go through periods of where we feel uh, stagnation, we feel some decline, and we begin to doubt that God is working in me through his word. But you know, this is not something to be doubted. If the word is faithfully preached, God is active and is at work in you as you receive that word by faith. Which means you must, one of the things this means is you must trust God's 
ways of doing this. I think this is one of the great tests of faith for Christians today. One of the reasons why so many churches have gone astray is because they have failed to believe that God is at work in the simple ways that he has told us that he is at work. God says he is at work through the preaching of the word. But boy, sometimes it doesn't feel like it. So what do we do? Let's start adding programs. Let's start adding this and that and the other thing in the church. And suddenly we become about those things, thinking this will surely get us the blessing of God when we've left behind the thing that God said, I promise you, I will work through the the word. You must trust God's ways. Do not think that you have to follow the latest evangelistic fad or methodology. Just because some other church is doing some new innovative thing and it seems like people are coming to the church does not mean that this church should do it also. Will you believe that God is working the way he has promised to work or will you doubt God by seeking something else? You must desire the simple and pure work of the faithful preaching of the word to shape your life and to shape the life of the church. So we're talking here about the response of the church. We said that you must uh, submit yourselves to your pastors as they bring the word of God to you faithfully. You must receive it as the words of God. You must believe as well that God is working in you and not doubt this. And then third, and, and this might be a little bit surprising to us, Our text tells us, as you do these things, you must be ready to suffer. must be ready to suffer. Look at verse 14, right? He's just talked about how they've received the the word of God as it really is. And then he says in verse 14, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. He says, look, what happened in the churches of Judea? It's happening in you now. What is it that's happening? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. It goes on to describe how they killed the Lord Jesus, the prophets. They drove the people out of the church. They displeased God. They're opposing all mankind. They're hindering them from speaking the word of the gospel so that others might be saved. You must be ready to suffer. Here in America, we are not usually very good at suffering. For one thing, we don't really know what suffering is for the most part. And I don't mean to, to, to deny the fact that there is real hurt that many of you may be feeling. But when it comes to suffering for the sake of the gospel, we, we don't really know what that is. And even when some suffering does come, we don't usually know how to handle it. You know, when you read the New Testament, suffering is far more common in churches in the Bible than not suffering. Who knows how long it will be before this church begins to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now, here's the important piece. The church will only truly suffer if it actually stands for the truth and prioritizes the preaching of the word that this passage calls us to. 
the world is quite happy to have churches as long as what they're involved in is doing good things in society and engaging in acts of mercy. There's little or no suffering that the world will bring upon that kind of institution. But if you remember you're to be faithful to your calling, there may indeed be suffering on the way. And when that happens, you have to do two things. One is stay faithful. Stay faithful. And two, encourage your pastors to stay faithful. Encourage your pastors to stay faithful. And if this does come, know that you're in good company. The Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, they became imitators of the other churches of God when they suffered. And so it will be with you. You will be like the church in Jerusalem, the church in Thessalonica, churches all throughout these last 2,000 years who have suffered for the sake of the gospel. So this is what you are called to do by this passage. As you think about your own pastors, as mothers and fathers in the faith, as they give you these instructions, you must receive their words as though it is the word of God when in fact they are bringing the word of God. You must believe that through them, God is at work in you. And you must be ready to suffer. Well, let me bring these things to a conclusion. First, to Chris and Anthony, and to anyone else in the room who is a minister of the gospel. Your task as pastors is a very difficult one. It's a very difficult one. Today we've discussed many things that are required of you or things that are forbidden of you. And this is only a small sampling of what Scripture says about your duties. Which means two things by way of repetition. First, you must commit yourself to this work, body and soul. As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, a soldier must focus on pleasing the one who's enlisted him, and an athlete competes hard according to the rules, and a farmer works diligently that he may enjoy the crops. This is not a work you can do halfway. And I'm not talking here about bivocational. That's not what I mean. This is a work in which you must apply yourself with diligence. Second, you cannot do this by yourself or from your own strength. Only in the strength of the Lord Jesus will you be able to fulfill your calling. So always look to him. Remember that right after, so I just alluded to 2 Timothy 2. He's given this admonition to hard work. Do you know what comes next? He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. So he gives these two admonitions hand in hand. On the one, work hard, be diligent, but... Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, victorious over all, having put to death sin and guilt. Brothers, just as it is your job to bring Christ to the church, so you also must bring Christ to your own heart and to your own work each day. And then to the church, Hope Reform Baptist Church. Today, God in this ordination is, is reinforcing these two gifts that he has given to you. In a sense, two parents over you. It is your duty to love them, to care for them, to listen to them, to submit to them, 
and above all, to receive Christ from them. Do these things in faith, believing that God is working in you through their ministry. Let's pray. Merciful and glorious Father, as we consider the calling of a pastor, we can only think who is sufficient for these things. Praise be to God that we have an answer. For the Lord Jesus is sufficient for all of these things. We pray now that he might be at work in this church to train the pastors to be men of God, to be able fathers and mothers to this flock. And would you please grant to this church that they might grow in the faith as they receive the Lord Christ through the ministry of these men. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant? Or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.